The following sermon was delivered to Christ Central Church in order to further our knowledge and adoration of who God is. We pray that it displays the hope found in Christ and strengthens your faith in Him. If you have a copy of God's Word, would you join me in Hebrews chapter 3? Start reading in verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son. And we are his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Spirit says, today, you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart. They have not known my ways. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart, leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. For we have come to share in Christ, if indeed we hold our original confidence firm to the end. As it is said today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart as in the rebellion. For who were those who heard and yet rebelled? Was it not all those who left Egypt led by Moses? And with whom was he provoked for 40 years? Was it not with those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness? And to whom did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but to those who were disobedient? So we see that we, that they were unable to enter because of unbelief. But church, Jesus is better. Last week. Jacob showed us from his word that Jesus is better than Moses. He is as much better than Moses as the son of the house is better than the servant in the house. That's the writer's point. Jesus is the son over the house. Moses was the servant in the house. Jesus is as much better as the builder of the house is better, is greater than the servant in the house. Jesus is the builder. He's the builder of the house. He is better than Moses. Because Moses was the servant. 
Jesus is the Son. Jesus is the Creator. He is the Creator of Moses. Moses is His servant. That's where the writer of Hebrews begins. He's handled Jesus being greater than the angels. The the mind of a Hebrew, the greatest of all created beings. Most exalted of all created beings. Now Jesus is greater than Moses. The most important of all Old Testament saints. The one to whom the law of God was given. And remember, for the Hebrew, for the Jew, the law of God holds primary place. But Jesus is better even than Moses. And so his argument then, therefore, is don't be like the Israelites who turned in the hardness of their hearts away from God. God was speaking to Moses in those days, in the days of the Exodus, God was speaking to Moses. This brings us back to Hebrews 1. 1, right? Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. One of whom was Moses. God was speaking to Moses in those days. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by something greater, through something greater. These last days, He has spoken to us through His Son. Jesus is greater than Moses. He's better than Moses. God was speaking to Moses and the Israelites fell away. Now God has spoken to us through His Son. So don't fall away. Don't be like the Israelites. Don't turn away. This is the the warning of of chapter 3. And and it really is the the warning of the whole book of Hebrews. This, This is what the... These Jews were in in danger of. Don't fall away from the gospel because of the hardness of your heart. This is a warning to those who know the gospel. This This isn't a warning to those who've never heard, have nothing to fall away from. They're already away. This is a warning to those who have We've heard the gospel. Maybe like you who have sat week after week, year after year, hearing the words of God, hearing the words of His Son, hearing the good news of the gospel. You know it. You know its facts. It's a warning for those who know the gospel, who affirm its truth, But because of a love of sin or a fear of persecution or whatever it may be, you have not committed yourself to the truth that you know to be real. These were Jews, the Hebrews, who had heard the gospel and had received it at least intellectually as true. But now they are in danger of falling back into the old. 
falling back into the bondage of works, which is Judaism. There's the same thing is true for all of us. You, you cannot read Hebrews. You can't read chapter 3 and not come face to face with that reality. That every single one of us, whether it's the man who stands here week after week and opens God's word and preaches, or it's the one who sits on the back row and barely listens. Every one of us are in the same danger. Our hearts are desperately wicked. There are loads of things that drag us backwards away from the gospel. Were things dragging these Jewish believers back? They certainly faced a great deal of ridicule from other Jews. In that ridicule certainly came some Persecution, it certainly cost them some things. Our, our minds can't really grasp the level of, of cost associated with following Jesus in the first century. A level of persecution we can't imagine. A, a literal dying to yourself and losing everything and in, in, in many, 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 many cases losing your very own life for the sake of the gospel. Hard for us to wrap our minds around that because we live in incredibly privileged society and a, a place that has experienced a great deal of freedom religiously, a country founded upon that, and in an area of the country where sort of the norm historically anyway has been to be a, a, a Christian, maybe in name only for, for most you probably, like me, feel like those days are coming swiftly to an end. we got a new danger upon us. The danger of ridicule and persecution, the danger of suffering that comes along with that. But if we don't fall away and accept a new morality and a new norm, we're in danger of falling away because, as the Scripture tells us, it's just the deceitfulness of sin. Because of temptations, the way that the evil ones in our own hearts lie to us to tell us that other things are better than Jesus. It would give us more fulfillment, more satisfaction than Him. We're in danger of falling away because of trials and tribulations. Because of hardships and sufferings. That's what had these brothers and sisters in danger, and that's what has us in danger. So the call of the book of Hebrews and the call of chapter 3 is, do not fall away. Do not fall away. Now, I had hoped to finish this chapter this week. Two, 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 two sermons through a whole chapter, but that's not going to happen. Not going to happen. So... I'm going to tell you where we're going over the next three weeks. Next three weeks, we'll finish out the third chapter. This week, we're going to look at the example. This week, we're going to look at the example. The example that is given to us 
by the writer of Hebrews that is the Israelite people. Next week, we're going to look at the exhortation. The exhortation. And then the week that follows that, we're going to look at the explanation. The explanation. So the example this week, the exhortation next week, the week after the explanation, verse 5. Now Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken later. But Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house. And then here, here's the warning. If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting and our hope. That's the warning. If we hold fast. And the way to say that is that we are in danger of not holding fast. Here's what that phrase means. It means that we are in Christ's household. We're a part of the household of God. We're a part of what is being built by Jesus Christ. We're a part of his family. We're a part of his house. We're part of his church. All those are used interchangeably in the scriptures. We're part of what he is the head over if we hold fast to the end. If we hold fast to the end. That is what defines the members of his house. The members of his house are those who are currently holding fast to our confession in faith with confidence. That's the members of his house. The members of his house are not those who walk down an aisle and say a prayer. Members of his house are not those who simply go through the waters of a baptism. The members of his house are those who are currently holding fast in faith their confession with confidence. And the members of his house are those who hold fast to the end. Now, I imagine that you probably have some questions about this. And these are questions that are going to arise, sort of the same question in different forms over and over again as we go through the book of Hebrews. And it is probably, if you stop and think about what we just said, that we're in danger of falling away, and people who are part of this house are those who hold fast. You're, you're, you're probably thinking, well, what about this, this, this Baptist tenant that we sort of historically know as once saved, always saved, right? Now, there's probably a better way to say that. A better way to say that is the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints. When we say you're in danger of falling away and you must hold fast, does that mean that you can come to faith and lose that faith, lose that salvation by falling away? Is that what that means? Now, that's probably the question that you have. Here's what I'm going to ask of you. And that is to hang tight. This is part of the reason why I wanted to do all of this in one sermon. 
because we're going to get there, but it's going to be in two weeks. I'll, I'll go ahead and, and let you know that verse 14 answers the question that you have. We're going to get there. I'll go ahead and tell you that those who persevere to the ends are those who are saved. That's the answer to the question. Those who persevere are those who are saved. If you don't persevere, you were never saved. Now we're going to look into that as we work our way through these verses. I'm, we're going to get there, I promise. Just, just, just hold on with me, okay? Now, for now, this is the warning. And we cannot escape the present condition if we hold fast. So we must ask the question, are we holding fast right now? Are we holding fast? If indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in hope. And the writer of Hebrews offers us an example. And it really is like the example. Like it is the greatest of all examples of what it looks like to not hold fast. And it's from the the time of Moses. And so verse 7 begins an Old Testament quotation from the, the time of David. This is a quotation taken from Psalm 95, 7 through 11. Here's what the author says, verse 7. This is where we are this week. Therefore, what's the therefore? The therefore is we are a part of his house if indeed we hold fast our confidence and our boasting in our hope. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, and I want to stop there. This is a little bit of an aside, but it's important nonetheless. That phrase is not just some introductory throwaway words. I hope you have learned by now that every word matters. What what that is right there, that is one of the clearest examples in all of the scriptures of its divine authorship. Now, who wrote Psalm 95? Well, we don't know. It's a trick question. It's not necessarily assigned, ascribed to anyone, probably David. But nonetheless, Psalm 95, which is quoted here was written by human hand, right? But that's not what the writer of Hebrews says. The writer of Hebrews says, therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, as the Holy Spirit says, what's the writer doing? The writer is is confirming the divine authorship of God's Word. This takes it right back again to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1. Long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to the prophets. That as the prophets wrote the Word of God, as, as human instruments wrote the Word of God, you cannot escape the fact that the Bible is the product of the Holy Spirit who has taken the words of God and given them to us through human writers. 
that God's Word has as its source and inspiration, God Himself, and as such is altogether authoritative. And I think as, as hopefully, as, as good Bible people, we would agree with that. It's authoritative. But in its authoritative nature, it is also timeless. And that's what we, we see here. The timelessness of God's Word. That it is authoritative and accurate and instructive and convicting for every person who has lived at any time since it's been given. That's what we see. How do we see it? Well, we see verses that, have, that, that refer back to the time of Moses written a thousand years later in the time of David, quoted in the first century, and still just as relevant for us today. God's Word is, is timeless. It transcends culture. It stands outside of it. It should shape it not be shaped by it. We don't give in to the temptation to sort of reorder God's Word to fit in our um, progressive understanding of things. No, it stands as the authoritative Word of God outside of those things and is timeless in its nature. It is even now as we come to God's Word. God speaking to us. Therefore, as the Holy Spirit says, well, what does he say? Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion on the day of testing in the wilderness where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. Therefore, I was provoked with that generation and said, they always go astray in their heart have not known my ways. I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. The writer of Hebrews is directing their attention back to the Exodus. Now, these are Jewish people. They would have known this well. He's directing their attention back there as an example of what it means to turn away from faith in God. What does the Holy Spirit say? The Holy Spirit says, today the timeless nature of God. That today was true in Moses' day, that today was true in David's day, that today was true in the first century, and that today is true 2,000 years later. It indicates a sense of urgency. It means right now. Right now. This is used three times in chapter 3 and once in chapter 4. It was urgent that these Israelites in Moses' day did not harden their hearts each and every day. And it was urgent that these Hebrews in the first century did not harden their hearts each and every day. And church, it is true for us today. It is urgent that we do not harden our hearts each and every day. The same urgency exists for us today, church, today. Do not think that you can put the things of God off until tomorrow. It may be too 
late. Today is the day for salvation. Today is the day to hear the gospel and receive it. And tomorrow is the day to awaken from your slumber and preach it again to yourself. Today, do not harden your hearts as in the rebellion. On the day of testing in the wilderness, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my works for 40 years. This is the story of the Hebrew people, the Israelites, who had been delivered from 400 years of bondage in Israel or in Egypt. God had taken them out of that bondage with mighty works. And in doing so, God was showing to them both His power to save and condemn. God had done mighty things, worked miraculous plagues, took them across the sea, and in the process destroyed Pharaoh's army. God had led them out into the wilderness. And the immediate response of the people of God was to complain. We see this in Exodus chapter 16, verses 2 and 3. And the whole congregation of the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. And the people of Israel said to them, Would that we have died by the hand of the Lord in the land of Egypt. And we sat by the meat pots and ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into the wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Oh, that we would have just been killed by the Lord in Egypt because it would have been far better than starving to death right here. We were sitting by the meat pots, eating all the bread we could have. And here we are out here in this wilderness, starving to death. You know, this seems crazy to us, right? We look at that and we go, what a bunch of idiots. How could they be like that after all that God had done for them? But don't we demonstrate a similar attitude under far less conditions of starvation? Attitudes of ingratitude and unbelief. Well, God was gracious. Even in their complaining, God was gracious. And how was God gracious? He was gracious to meet their need. And how did God meet their need? God met their need by just giving them bread. Just giving them manna here. In Egypt, you had to work for it. Here, you just get up and get it. God's gracious and God moves them along until... Exodus 17, verses 1 through 3. All the congregation of the people of Israel moved on from the wilderness of sin by stages, according to the commandment of the Lord, camped at Rephidim. There was no water for the people to drink. For the people quarreled with Moses and said, Give us water to drink. And Moses said to them, Why do you quarrel with me? Why do you test the Lord? 
But the people thirsted there for water, and the people grumbled against Moses and said, why did you bring us up out of Egypt to kill us and our children and our livestock with thirst? What does God do? God is gracious. God gives them water from the rock. And then again, as they come finally to the promised land, they send the spies in to spy it out. What's their response in Numbers 14? Starting in verse 1, Then all the congregation raised a loud cry, and the people wept that night. And all the people of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron. The whole congregation said to them, Would that we have died in the land of Egypt! that we have died in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us into this land to fall by the sword? Our wives and our little ones will become a prey. Would it not be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to one another, let us choose a leader and go back to Egypt. Down to verse 11, and the Lord said to Moses, how long will this people despise me? How long will they not believe in me? In spite of all the signs that I have done for them, I will strike them with the pestilence and disinherit them. And I will make of you a nation greater and mightier than they. Down to verse 21. But truly as I live and as all the earth shall be filled with the glory of the Lord, none of the men seen my glory and my signs that I did in Egypt and in the wilderness and yet have put me to the test these ten times. have not obeyed my voice. None of them shall see the land that I swore to give to their fathers. None of those who despised me shall see it. God had freed Israelites from Egypt by awesome, miraculous plagues, brought them through the Red Sea, and in the process destroyed Pharaoh's army. Without fail, he had provided manna to feed them water to satisfy them, pillars of cloud and fire to guide them. And still they asked, is God among us? You see, the Israelites had every opportunity and every evidence to believe. Yet they didn't. They fell away. And in the process... They died in the wilderness, never entering the promised land of rest because of their unbelief. Church, what else did they need? What else could God have done? That is the nature of unbelief, isn't it? I want you to listen to the difference in unbelief and belief from the New Testament. In Luke chapter 16, Jesus gives us a parable that that teaches us about unbelief. In verse 19, there was a rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and who feasted sumptuously every day. At his gate was laid a poor man named Lazarus covered with sores who desired to be fed with what fell from the rich man's table. Moreover, even the dogs came and licked his sores. The poor man died and was carried by the angels to Abraham's side. 
the rich man also died. He was buried. And in Hades, being in torment, he lifted up his eyes and saw Abraham far off and Lazarus at his side. And he called out, Father Abraham, have mercy on me. And send Lazarus to dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. But Abraham said, Child, remember that you in your lifetime received your good things, and Lazarus in the like manner received bad things. But now he is comforted here, and you are in anguish. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been fixed, in order that those who would pass from here to you may not be able, and none may cross from there to us. He said, then I beg you, Father, to send him to my father's house where I have five brothers so that he may warn them lest they also come into this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. See, the Israelites had everything they needed. God spoke to Moses and gave him his word. And God still does the same things to us today. God has spoken through his prophets. And now in these last days, even better, he's spoken to us through his son. We have all that we need to believe. What's the implication here? The implication here is, If someone came back from the dead, it wouldn't be enough. That's the nature of unbelief. Not enough evidence to make you believe. It's not show me one more thing. It's not prove it one more way. That's not the nature of belief. It's the nature of unbelief. Now, what's the nature of belief? What's the example of belief? In Mark chapter 9, we see an example of belief. And someone in the crowd answered him, Teacher, I brought my son to you, for he has a spirit that makes him mute. And whenever it seizes him, it throws him down, and he foams, he grinds his teeth, and he becomes rigid. Well, I asked your disciples to cast it out, and they were not able. And he answered them, O faithless generation, How long am I to be with you? How long am I to bear with you? Bring him to me. And they brought the boy to him. And when the spirit saw him immediately and convulsed the boy, and he fell on the ground and rolled about foaming at the mouth. And Jesus asked his father, how long has this been happening to him? And he said, from childhood. And it has often cast him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. But if you can do anything, have compassion on us and help us. And Jesus said to him, if you can, All things are possible for the one who believes. Immediately, the father of the child cried out and said, I believe. Help my unbelief. I believe. I believe. Even in my unbelief, I believe. I believe that in you all things are possible. That's the nature of belief. See, there's no evidence that is sufficient for the person that does not want to believe. And on the other hand, the one who wants to believe, trust God despite any evidence 
that may be lacking. The Israelites didn't hold fast. They fell away in unbelief. This is the example given. But what's the relationship between then and now? Well, as we read it, we see all that God has done, and we see their response. We can't help but think that their unbelief is illogical and unreasonable. How in the world could they have still not believed that God was with them? Church, listen, for us, the same thing is true. When presented with all the evidence, unbelief is illogical and unreasonable. When we look at the cosmos, when we look at creation, when we look at God's goodness to us, we look at God's presence with us, look into His Word and see His faithfulness. All the evidence we need. Believe. How is what was happening in the Exodus relatable to us now, well, the reality is, is that the Christian life is in the same way common to the Exodus story. Right? In grace, God has freed us from bondage. Now, we're not in bondage to a taskmaster like an Egyptian pharaoh. No, we're in a greater bondage to a greater taskmaster. A bondage to the one who has the power of death. We're in bondage to sin. We're slaves to our passions. We're in bondage to sin. But God in His grace brings us out of that bondage. Frees us from that bondage. And guess what? He frees us from that bondage in the same way He freed the Egyptian, or the Israelites from Egypt. How? By the death of the firstborn son. We're free. Christ frees us out of our bondage. But the reality is, we still live in the wilderness. We live in the wilderness of brokenness, of temptation, suffering. That's this life. And we live there until we enter the promised land of rest. That is the new heavens and the new earth. And while in the wilderness of this life, when things go badly or we experience trouble, we become afraid, how easy it is for us to blame God. How easy it is to complain, to doubt His power and His love and His care. Don't follow the example of the Israelites. Instead, remember God's work of grace. How He has, through the power of His Son, freed you from your greatest bondage. That He does care for you. Don't put God 
to the test. Most people don't need more proof that God is real or that Jesus is his son and the savior. Instead, they need to hate and repent of their sin and commit themselves to Jesus. A God who is continually tested will never be accepted. People who continually test God today do so for the same reasons that the Israelites did in Moses' day. Because in testing him, they put him off because they love their sin, they love their own ways and their own plans too much to give them up for God. Don't test God. That's what the Israelites were guilty of. Verse 9, were your, where your fathers put me to the test and saw my words for 40 years. What does that mean to put God to the test? Well, it's the exact same thing that Jesus says to Satan in his temptation. Jesus quotes Matthew 4, 5, and 7. The devil took him to the holy city and set him on the pinnacle of the temple and said to him, If you are the Son of God, throw yourself down as it is written. He will command his angels concerning you, and on their hands they will bear you up, lest you strike your foot against the stone. And Jesus said to them, to him, Again, it is written, You shall not put the Lord God to the test. That's a quote, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16. You shall not put the Lord your God to test as you tested him at Manasseh, at uh, Massa. The question, his goodness, his provision in a way that seeks him to get to, to act because of your unbelief is to test God. Question his goodness, his provision in a way that seeks to get him to act because of your unbelief is a testing of God. Why would, oh, if God was with me, he wouldn't cause me to lose these things. God were with me, he wouldn't take from me my son. If God were with me, he wouldn't take from me my Father, if God were with me, he wouldn't take from me my mother. If God were with me, he wouldn't take from me this job. If God were with me, he'd give me that job. If God were with me, these things would happen. God, even with us, the Israelites cried. In other words, God, show yourself again that you're with us. Church, he's already shown us. He showed us in His Son. He showed us in the greatest way. He was showing Himself faithful through Moses. He's even more showing Himself faithful through His Son who's better. This testing of God is always accompanied by a complaining spirit. What did they do every time? They, they quarreled among themselves with Moses, with Aaron. Their testing was in the form of complaining. Church, don't fall into a complaining spirit. We don't think of complaining as a big deal, but church complaining is a big deal. Much so, Philippians chapter 2, do all things without grumbling or disputing, complaining, that you may become blameless and pure, children of God, without fault in this crooked and depraved generation, among whom you shine like the stars of the heaven. Do all things without complaining. Don't have a, a complaining spirit. If you find yourself always complaining, 
Woe is me. Oh, but these circumstances. Oh, but these things I've lost. Oh, but these things I've never had. Oh, but my lot in life. If God were only with me. This complaining is a symptom of a deeper spiritual problem. It's a lack of trust. Quite frankly, it shows us that we have a very limited understanding of God. Because if we are always complaining, the reality is we don't know him. Not really. Not really. We don't know him. What does he say in verse 10? Therefore, I was provoked with that generation, and I said, they always go astray in their hearts. They have not known my ways. They go astray in their complaining and in their testing, and God says the reality is that it's the evidence of a heart that does not know me. Because if they knew me, they would know that I am good. If they knew me, they would know that I am with them. If they knew me, they know that I'm faithful to my promises. If they knew me, they would know that I will take them to the promised land. Your complaining and your testing is evidence that you've never known him. Really. Don't fall away. Hold fast to the faith. Know Him. Know Him through His Word. Meditate on His goodness, His faithfulness. Don't be like the Israelites. Remember all the ways He's been gracious. Consider Jesus. That's the call of the book of Hebrews. Consider Jesus, who is better. When God is filling our thoughts, then we learn to rejoice even in our trials. Listen to this quote from Donald Gray Barnhouse. How wonderful that we, when we are blinded by tears, we can nevertheless see our God. In fact, our tears become crystal lenses through which he is magnified. And in the midst of suffering, we realize the greatness of his power and the tenderness of his love. Church, today, don't harden your hearts as the Israelites did and time of testing in the wilderness. Don't harden your hearts. Instead, hear the gospel. See the goodness of God and trust him in faith. Trust him in faith. Now, next week, we will see a practical way we do this through an exhortation. Father, would you help us by your grace to hold fast with confidence, our confession. It's not be like the Israelites who put you to the test. Oh, if you were really with us, you would do these things. 
to not grumble and complain in our spirits, but instead, deep in our hearts, would we know you. We would know your goodness, your kindness, your faithfulness, your steadfastness. We would know that you have been gracious and merciful. And we would know that you are faithful to your word and to your promises. Would we consider Jesus a captain of our faith? Who took the shame of the cross? Showing once and for all that you are for us, not against us. That according to your grace, you work all things together for good. Those who love you, who are called according to your purpose. So may our trust in you not wane like the Israelites in the wilderness. Would we every day preach the gospel to ourselves and wake up and say, I woke up today a sinner in need of grace. And I find all that I need for life and godliness in Jesus Christ. Gave his life for me so that by faith I could be freed from the bondage of this sin. By faith I could follow you through this wilderness of suffering, temptation, pain, and brokenness. And by faith one day be welcomed in to an everlasting rest in your presence. Would you help us hold fast? Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this Christ Central Church sermon series. To find our gathering location and more sermons, visit ChristCentralChurch.net.